Toby asked me to fill in a couple of Sunday nights because of kind of between series and things was his explanation. I think it was because the daily Bible reading is on Revelation this week. He's been finding lessons in the daily Bible reading, so I assumed I should continue that practice and looked, and it's Revelation. So I said, well, fine, I'll just explain Revelation to him in a couple of weeks. <laughs> we'll talk about Revelation for a couple of weeks, but I don't think I'll explain it. Uh, I imagine everybody in here has some phrases in their mind that they know from Revelation. Uh, a lot of it is common usage these days. It's, it's part of our culture. People talk about the, the beast and the mark of the beast and 666 and uh, all kinds of things that come from this little book. Uh, and everybody thinks they know what some of it means. I'm not sure anybody does, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. When I sat down to consider how to explain Revelation in a couple of weeks, I thought, well, I'll just see what the Internet has to say. So I, I just typed in the understanding Revelation. I think that's what I put in there. And I just went down the first few hits, and I found the BibleStudy.org and uh Realtruth.org and RevelationProphecyRevealed.org and uh, all of them gave a little synopsis of here's what the book means. And all of them said basically the same thing uh, that I put on your handout there. They said something like what John MacArthur said. John said, no other New Testament book poses more serious and difficult interpretive challenges than Revelation." And then all the websites, and including John MacArthur, all say that, and then they go on to give you a detailed explanation of everything in the book of Revelation. <laughs> I find that humorous. All of them say nobody agrees on what this means, but here's what it means. Uh, so that's my challenge tonight, is to uh, explain something that's... A little tough to explain. Uh, Revelation's a strange book. It, in fact, the early church fathers, I understand from reading, that they argued quite lengthily about whether it belonged in the New Testament or not. Uh, and if you're reading through the Bible, which you should do, some people make the mistake of starting with Revelation. That's a really bad thing to do. Uh, that's why it's last. You ought to read it last. Uh, but even then, it's a strange book. You read through the other 65 first, and then all of a sudden, here's Revelation. And I was thinking about, what's that like? I, and then first thing popped in my mind, it was kind of like reading a whole bunch of presidential biographies. Great weighty history and interesting uh, facts about people and all sorts of things. And then all of a sudden, picking up Alice in Wonderland. It's just that's different, that's strange, that uh, doesn't fit with everything else. But it's in there, and uh, it's in our daily Bible reading, so we need to think about it a little bit. And 
just charging off reading it, you can get all kinds of different ideas. Now, I'm sure there's some, some folks here that know a whole lot more about, well, <laughs> no doubt a whole lot of people here know a whole lot more than I do about Revelation. Uh, a lot of folks in here have been to preaching school and studied and understand what people have to say about it and all that. Uh, I'm not the best one to explain Revelation because I really haven't studied it much. Uh, I don't find it uh, a really hard word to pick here. I hate to say I don't find it that important, uh, but I, I mean, it's part of the canon, and I know it's revelation from God and all of that. But in the grand scheme of things, it's the last one I want to understand. When people ask me about Revelation, I say it on TV sometimes, uh, when I get the other 65 figured out, then I'm going to figure out Revelation. But it's the last in the things that I'm going to worry about, uh, partly because it's so hard and possibly impossible to figure out, uh, but partly because it just uh, doesn't affect, really, uh, salvation matters. I think it's an encouragement. I think it's helpful. I think it's about being faithful. I, I think a lot of those things, but to understand what everything in there means. The cost-benefit analysis there is pretty out of whack. Uh, to spend enough time to think you understand it, and then what do you get out of that? Uh, I realize it's a strange preacher talk, but I guess I'm not really a preacher anymore, so I can talk this way. You know, I start off a sermon on Revelation telling you you don't really need to understand Revelation. Uh, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here, trying to talk about. Chapter 17 is, and turn there if you would, because read along with me on part of it. Uh, chapter 17 is about the, uh, the, the great prostitute, it says in modern translation. Uh, all the kids are gone, so I guess I can say that it basically is talking about the great horror of Babylon. And gives a strange description of this woman. Uh, starting verse 6, uh, well, he's describing her before that, and she's arrayed in purple and scarlet, and she's got jewels on, and on and on, and sexual immorality, and got a name on her forehead, and all of this. And verse 6 says, uh, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Well, yeah, uh, I would marvel greatly if I saw what he just described. And the angel says, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Well, that's good news. The angel's going to explain it to us. I mean, we're reading through here now, just reading it like literature. And John says, I saw this woman, and I, man, I, she was beyond comprehension. But the angel says, I'll explain her to you. I'll tell you what this means. Now listen to what the angel says. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Well, that helps, doesn't it? it I, I want to know what the beast is. Well, the beast was and is not and is about to rise. Okay, thanks, angel. And the dwellers on earth whose 
names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now the angel gets real helpful. He says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Okay, yeah, I'm having a little trouble understanding, so I, I need a mind of wisdom. And he, then it goes on and explains, the seven heads are seven mountains. Okay, does that help everybody else in here? Now, I mean, people that know what this means say, aha, seven mountains, that's seven hills. Rome was built on seven hills, talking about Rome. The angel didn't say that. The angel said, the seven heads of the beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated and, in case that didn't clarify it, it's also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Now, anybody else really helped by that? I mean, this is the angel explaining to John what this stuff means. I may be just slow, but... You know, that doesn't help me, but now I can read what people have written. I can read commentaries where people say, ah, this means this and this means this. And then I can go to another website or pick up another commentary and somebody else tell me something completely different. The rest of the Bible, you sit down and read it, and if you put your thinking cap on, you can figure it out. This stuff is so symbolic uh, that... Like all the quotations say, nobody knows what this means except me. You know, everybody else doesn't know, but I can tell you. Uh, so anyhow, that just one passage there that kind of illustrates to me how difficult this is. So how do we read a book like this? I mean, yeah, if you've got time, it's okay with me if you read all the commentaries and put together your own perfect explanation of what the mountains are and what the seas are and what the trumpets are and all that. But for the rest of us that don't have time to study and get a doctorate in Revelation, how do we read this in our daily Bible reading for a week and a half or so? That's what I want to try to help you think through tonight. So let's, let's do that quickly here. Over 2,000 years of people trying to figure this out, there's four main ways that people say, here's what Revelation means. And I put those on there. I know it's kind of boring, so I don't want to get into it too much. But there's four pretty distinct ways that people say you ought to figure out a Revelation. First one is that it's past. It's already happened when John wrote it. It was about the first century. It was about Nero. It was about Peter and Paul and all the apostles being killed and all that. It's just describing the past. Of course, now it says it's about what's coming in the future, so that's kind of a weird way to read it, but some people say that. There are scholars, you can pick up their books, and they say that's what John was doing, was recounting history here. Then there's a historical interpretation where people say 
this is about from the time he wrote it till the end of time. It's telling us what's going to happen. It's predicting history for us. So as you read it, you should be able to figure out oh, these kings. Okay, well, let's figure out who those ten kings are. And some people figure it out that they've already happened, and some think they're coming and all that, but it's the whole sweep of history from first century till now. Some people say it's future, that uh, in 2016, uh, most of it hadn't happened yet. And almost all of it's yet to happen. We're looking forward to it. It's coming. And then there is a idealist group that they're called that say it's really not about actual events. It's just stories. It's just kind of allegories. And they're all teaching the same thing, that good will overcome evil. And good's fighting evil all the time. Evil's fighting good. And at the end, good's going to win. And that's all you got to get out of it. You don't have to figure out who kings are or mountains are or beasts are or anything. It's just story after story that mean evil's always going to be against good, no matter what. But you can't pin it down to, because it's not about actual events. It's just allegorical kind of stories. Okay, now, you can pick one of those if you want to. Maybe by the end of tonight you'll be ready to pick one. I don't know. Uh, the other piece that comes in and multiplies things, multiplies difficulty uh, by a factor of quite a bit is the millennium. And this has always amazed me also. Uh, Revelation 20, first seven verses, talk about a thousand years. It says it five or six times in there, about a thousand years. And people have taken that and decided that there is a thousand year, literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth somehow. Now, that's part of the confusion of Revelation is the passage I just read from, you, from chapter 17 um, said that the, the kings were going to have uh, power for one hour. And every commentary I glance look at says, oh, that, that's just symbolic. That just means a short time. Can't mean an hour. It's just a symbolic short time. But they get to Revelation 20, and a thousand years means a thousand years. You know, there's nothing symbolic about that. It's a thousand years. I mean, how you do that, I don't know. But they do it. So this thousand-year thing especially the last century or half a century, has really blown up into affecting everybody's picture of Revelation. Uh, there's a couple of ways to look at it. You probably have heard of premillennialism, whether you've heard of postmillennialism or not, I don't know. Uh, that pre and post are talking about the second coming, whether Jesus comes pre-millennial, before he comes before the thousand-year reign, or post, whether he comes after it. Like I said, this is a little detail, a little boring, but this is how you got to think about Revelation to start with. So there's a couple of kinds of pre-millennialism. One says the millennial, Jesus comes before the millennial, but after the tribulation. 
That theory says that the world just keeps getting worse and worse, which it looks like it's doing. Then the Antichrist is going to come. Then Christ is going to come. He's going to rapture the righteous, and he's going to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. He comes after the tribulation, but at the start of the millennium. Second way of thinking about premillennialism is that he comes before the tribulation. This is the most famous. This is the Left Behind series. This is what you read in the Schofield, Schofield Reference Bible. This is what you read in John MacArthur's Study Bible. They are post-tribulation. They are pre-tribulation premillennialists or dispensational premillennialists. They think this is what's going to happen. That Jesus is going to come, sort of. Everybody's not going to see him. He's just going to secretly rapture us and all the other good folks. And then the tribulation starts. The Antichrist happens and all of that. And that goes on for a period. And Israel finally starts to come toward Christ. And all of that goes on. And Israel's doing something. And Armageddon's happening. And then finally, Jesus is going to come back and rule for a thousand years. Okay. Now, both of those are saying Jesus comes and then there's going to be a thousand year reign on earth. And then there's going to be a final judgment. Postmillennialism is that he comes after the world gets better and better and the church grows until almost everybody in the world believes. And then Christ comes and binds Satan and he rules for a thousand years. Okay. Last one is amillennialism, which means no millennium. No literal millennium. People look at Revelation 20 and say, well, it's just talking about a long period of time. That Christ is going to reign for a period of time. Well, New Testament elsewhere tells us that Christ is reigning. Ah, he's already reigning. Maybe we're in this thousand-year period where Satan has been limited and Christ is reigning and all of that. So those are the main ways of looking at it uh, in general. And there's differences among churches of Christ, but in general we're supposedly amillennialists. We think we're in the reign of Christ right now. We don't think there's going to be a secret rapture. We don't think there's going to be a thousand-year reign on earth. We think Jesus is coming back someday and all the dead are going to be raised. We're going to meet him in the air. We're going to have judgment. We're going to go to heaven. When I preached a long series about the afterlife and the end times, that was the position I presented. I think that's the most biblical. Does it everything fit with Revelation? Man, I don't know what fits with Revelation. Revelation is symbolic. Okay, now, all of that's a little confusing. That's kind of what I intended it to be. It is confusing to try to figure all this out from a book that is so symbolic you can't understand the details to start with. It's tricky business. So, as you read it in your daily Bible reading, as you, if you choose to study it more, fine, uh, I think if you take a little history into account and then think about what John really said, I think we might get some clues to whether any of this is important or not. 
Okay, let's talk about persecution first and be very brief about this. But the time that John wrote this, he wrote it about, everybody agrees, somewhere in the mid-90s, 94, 95, 96, somewhere in there, toward the end of the first century. And what was going on in the world at that time? That's what I put down here for you. Uh, Nero was emperor from 54 to 68. Now, what was going on during Bible times, we pretty well got that in the book of Acts and the letters, and we kind of know that. In 54 through 68, Nero was the emperor, and he was crazier than a bed bug and caused all sorts of problems. Everybody knows that. Everybody's heard enough about Nero and things he did and persecuted not only Christians, but basically anybody that was a threat to the empire. You were on his enemies list. You were liable to end up on a pole as a torch at one of his garden parties. That's the kind of things he did. Uh, he was definitely unhinged. Uh, but he didn't specifically set out to persecute Christians. He, indeed, he was just against anybody that questioned the empire's power and his ruling power. Uh, and he pretty well let the locals handle it. The local governors, the local Roman authorities, uh, they were just supposed to stamp out any objection to the Roman Empire. So you might live in one city as a Christian and really get persecuted. I mean, killed kind of persecuted. You might live in another city and not get bothered much. It wasn't the position of Rome to persecute everybody. But being a Christian was a risky business back then. Okay. Uh, so Nero was a bad, bad emperor, but it wasn't like he only hated Christians. Uh, Domitian was the next one and ruled for 15 years or so, right as, and he was ending up just right as John was writing this. And he also, he wasn't anti-Christian as such. He just persecuted everybody that disagreed. Anybody that didn't agree he was the supreme ruler and Rome was, had the authority to do anything they wanted, uh, you were an enemy of the state and got dealt with. Uh, Domitian was a little bit off track also, uh, did some strange things. Uh, but the difference between him and Nero is Domitian... Uh, told people that they had to call him certain things. And I put some of those on the handout for you. One was God the Lord. Uh, he believed he was God the Lord. And in Rome, that's the way he ruled things. You questioned him, you got persecuted. Uh, he wanted to be called Lord of the earth or holy or refer to him as thou alone. Now, you can see how, while Christians might not have been persecuted specifically because they were Christian, this would cause a little problem for most Christians. Okay? If you had to deal with Rome, or you had to deal with some governor, and he said, what do you think about Domitian? If you didn't say, uh, he is God the Lord, the Lord of the earth, he is a holy God, and he alone is God. If you weren't willing to say that kind of stuff, you were suspect. So that might bother some other people, but it really bothered Christians. So they're the ones that came 
under the most fire, I guess, perhaps, uh, during the reign of Domitian. Uh, it's interesting, he was so anti-everybody, but did persecute a lot of Christians. Uh, Pliny, an early Christian writer, described him as, listen to this, the beast from hell who sat in his den licking blood. Now, if you've read Revelation yet, you, you may have seen some words like that. Okay. Uh, that's how John refers to the beasts. Maybe a clue. And then Trajan came in about the time John wrote the book and for a couple of decades after. He was the first one to really say that Christians are a threat. The rest of them were just kind of anti-anybody that disagreed. But uh, Trajan said Christians are a problem. Uh, we got to stamp them out. Now, he was not, he didn't start a whole purge of Christians or anything. Uh, he didn't say to seek them out, but he said if you run into one and they won't admit that Roman Empire is the authority and that Caesar is the Lord of everything, uh, if they won't recant that, then they need to be dealt with. Uh, if they'll change their mind and say, I'm the all-powerful, then let them go. They're all right. But he specifically identified Christians. Before that, Jews, Christians, anybody that didn't agree Caesar was Lord was in trouble. Trajan specifically targeted the group of Christians. So that's the history of what's going on about the time John writes this. That's what the people he was writing to were familiar with. That's what they were living under. Okay. Now, the other piece I think is important to throw into this mix as we read Revelation is John's history. John was Jesus' closest apostle. He was the one Jesus loved. He was the one that went with him everywhere. Uh, we know that from our study of Acts and John and all that. Uh, he was there. He saw Jesus' life. He traveled with him. He saw Jesus die. He was at the cross that day. He saw Jesus' resurrection. He went to the tomb. He was on the hill when Jesus went back to heaven. This guy is special now. He's seen all of this. Yeah. On top of that, he knew what happened in A.D. 70. Because he was the oldest apostle, he lived, was still alive in 94, 95, 6. He saw what happened in 70. He saw Rome destroy Jerusalem. Destroy the holy places. And you say, well, that was Judaism. Well, John was a Jew. He was raised that way. Jerusalem was a special, special place. Uh, that's where his Lord was crucified. Okay. He saw it completely wiped off the map by Rome. He went to Ephesus and the, the cities around there and ministered in the later parts of his life. Uh, from secular history, he spent extra time in Ephesus, supposedly, knew them the most intimately. And finally, because he preached the gospel, uh, he was exiled under Domitian authority, probably, Exiled to the island of Patmos, a barren little kind of rocky island, and lived out his life there as far as we know. Was the oldest 
or the last living apostle. He was an old man when he wrote this. I don't know how old he was exactly when Jesus came along, but say in his 20s maybe, uh, well, he had to be at least 80, 90 now. An old man. And he had been forced to leave the churches that he loved, uh, the seven churches in Asia there was mainly where he worked. And he wrote this book about 94 to 96 A.D. So you put those together, what's going on in the world, Christianity is being persecuted. Uh, here's a guy that knew Christ. He saw him go back to heaven. And he's got these churches that he loves, and he gets this vision from an angel. And if you start reading the book that way, with those things in mind, I think it gets a little easier to kind of get a big picture of it. Now, I told you I looked at all these websites, I've read books, I've done all that, and they all say everything different. I think a novel approach might be to ask John... What's this book mean? Wouldn't that be handy to ask the author? Say, what did you mean by this? Well, in the first few verses, John gives some pretty good clues. So let's just read those to finish tonight. He's turn to John 1.1 if you want. I mean, Revelation 1.1. And here's what the author says about this book. He doesn't start out and say this is a historical, premillennial, preterist, futurist view. He says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's not a revelation from Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. It's revealing Jesus to us. To, to John. Well, what do you need to know about Jesus? Remember, where, where was John? Where were all Christians? They knew about his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And now the authorities are killing brothers and sisters. What kind of questions would you have? If you lived in Ephesus, and Paul had come and taught you about Jesus... And told you about his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension, and all that. And told you he's coming back someday. And then John shows up and tells you, yeah, I was there. I was at the cross. Yeah, I was at the tomb. I was on the hill when he went back to heaven. What kind of questions would you have? Well, it's such a mess right now. Where is Jesus? What's he doing? Who's in charge? Who's running things right now? We're getting hammered. The governor of Ephesus, if he doesn't like a Christian, he just kills you. What kind of deal is this? I mean, that's what I'd ask if I was in Ephesus. Are we starting to ask some of those kind of questions right now? Why are Christians being, why are we the bad guys all of a sudden? The way the world is going. Well, multiply that back to the time of Ephesus and Domitian and Trajan and all that. Man, I'd be asking those questions. 
So John says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This reveals him so you know what's going on. I'll tell you where he is. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's reigning from heaven. That's what this book says over and over and over. He says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's given them a future picture. And am I saying I understand all the picture? I haven't a clue about most of the picture. But I know it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you could look into the future and get a revelation of something. I was trying to think of an example, and I I thought about, uh, heard on the TV this week that Apple computer is uh, 40 years old. Jobs started it in 1976. Now, in 1976, actually, I guess their IPO was in 1980. If somebody came to you in 1980 and said, I got a stock for you, would you invest $1,000 in a computer company? Excuse me, what's a computer? Well, it's this machine, kind of like a typewriter, which got a screen on it and like a TV, and it, it does things. You know, well, what's the name of this company? Apple. Thousand dollars? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. But what if, at that point, I said, I'd like to give you a revelation of Apple. I've got a machine here. It's called a VCR. It records pictures. What? <laughs> this one does the future. So let me take you to 2016 and show you what Apple stock is worth. If you reveal what happens in the next 35 years, 40 years, would you spend $1,000 for Apple stock? Yeah, that would be encouraging, wouldn't it? Okay, and it's not the best ever. Now, if you were in that 40 years, Apple stock went up and down. It got really low. I mean, the founder got fired, basically. Yeah, I mean, you see all these things happen, and you might say, what's happening to my stock? But if you had this revelation that if I just hold on, if I just stay faithful, I'm going to be a millionaire. Okay, I realize that's a pitiful illustration of the book of Revelation, but it's the best one I could think of. John's revealing Jesus Christ. These people are down here getting hammered by Rome, and they don't know where Jesus is. They don't know what the big picture is. And John says in verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he tells them, and in the next part of verse 1, he says, I was shown this by an angel, and what I was shown was the things that soon must take place. Here's what's going to happen. If you're in Ephesus and half the congregation's just been arrested or you're up in one of the other ones and brothers and sisters are being killed or whatever and the apostle writes you and says, here's what's going to happen. In fact, these things are going to happen pretty soon. That would be pretty good news, I think. 
if you got a letter like that and said, okay. Now, how soon did it take place? Well, I think, number one, that prohibits this from being all future. If you want to pick the futurist view and say none of this has happened yet, then that doesn't make much sense that John wrote to him and said, this has got to happen soon. Now, there's some second coming stuff in there. I know all of that. So I don't think all of it happened in the next 20 years. But he's given them a picture of how things are going to go. And if you think of it from another perspective, what's the longest that anybody there was going to have to wait to see this revelation of Jesus Christ? They didn't live very long back then. So if they were 40, maybe 10, 20 years, they were going to see this. This was all going to come true. They were going to see what's going on in heaven. But however you interpret the soon thing, it sure takes the futurist picture out of it. And he says, this is what's going to happen. So that's the way they read it. The next big key is verse 4, where he says, this thing, this book, this revelation is written to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, that doesn't mean I can just ignore it, but it means I've got to read it with a little different perspective than what everybody on the TV tells you, that this was written, so in 2016, I'd know what was going to happen next year. You know, that's, that's just balderdash. Uh, that can't be right. Now, he wrote it to seven churches, seven specific churches that were living between the time of Domitian and Trajan. They were suffering persecution, and he sent them this revelation of what Jesus Christ, where he is and who he is and what's going on. If you were in Ephesus, some of the old-timers there knew Paul. Some of them had been there when John was there and heard all his stories. And now this guy writes them and says, the angel told me what's going to happen soon. I think if I was in Ephesus, I'd read it a little different way than the websites tell me to today. Now, if you know all of that, if you know the history of the times, if you know John's history, if you know who it was being written to, all of the pre and post and beasts and ten mountains and all that, they don't seem quite so important anymore to me. If I read it like I'm in Ephesus and I'm being persecuted and here's what John's telling me is going to be helpful, I'm not going to understand all of it. But if I look for that big picture, I might understand Revelation a little better. Now, let me illustrate that by going back to chapter 17. We read part of that chapter about the great prostitute and the beasts and all of that. Now, whether you know what any of that means or not, listen to this. Verse 14. The beasts and the woman and all of that stuff. Verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. 
For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Okay, if I'm in Ephesus, I might be able to figure out who the great whore is. I might say, well, he's talking about Domitian. You know, I don't know if they figured all that out or not. But after, I know after they read all of this symbolic, visionary stuff, and John said, those are the folks who are waging war on the Lamb. And the Lamb's going to win. I think they got the message. I think that's a good way to approach Revelation. Okay, next week we're going to get a little more into the, the message of Revelation, so we can kind of get that picture. And if there's any, ever a book that fits... Toby's theme of unswerving faith, uh, that's kind of the message of Revelation. So we'll work on that next week. Appreciate your attention. Lessons yours. If you're here this evening and need to respond to the Lord's invitation in any way, we'd be happy to help you. I'll stand and sing a song of invitation. If you need to come, come.